From jet engines to space rockets, telephones to computers, the world has seen spectacular change in the last hundred years, and the pace of progress is getting faster and faster. From electric cars to the metaverse, drone deliveries to climate solutions and genetic sequencing, we're investing in the companies that are not just changing the world today, but are also shaping the future. The Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Invest in progress. Capital at risk. Hello and welcome to The Advice Show. I'm Nicola, a reporter at New Model Advisor, and today we're discussing AIM Investing with Puma Investment CEO David Kay and Investment Manager Joe Cornwall. So hi, David and Joe, and thank you very much for joining us. How are you both today? Thanks, Nicola. Delighted to be here. Great to be here, Nicola. Great to have you. Um, So, David and Joe, first of all, I just thought we should maybe address um, some thoughts that our listeners might have about the AIM market. Um, Obviously, quite a kind of specialised market and advisors are obviously coming to it often with um, specific purpose of um, investing for those tax advantages or they are just quite kind of bullish on that market. So, I think there might be some advisors that have some concerns regarding volatility and illiquidity issues when it comes to that market. So I just wanted to ask, I guess, to, to clear th- some things up a bit. You know, do advisors raise these concerns with you? And um, if so, what would you say to them? Without doubt, AIM is, is a volatile market. And 2022 was the worst year for AIM since the financial crisis. So the volatility really did come to the fore. And we emphasize with advisors that whilst the two-year business relief clock is is what investors may think about, they really do need to think about it as a long-term investment, so a three- to five-year view. And by holding it for a longer term, then hopefully that smooths out the volatility. But that doesn't um, stop the issue of the volatility in the short term, and the, and the clients must be comfortable with that shorter-term volatility. Yeah, absolutely. Was there anything you wanted to add on that, David? Yeah, I, th- I think the um, market, the A market specifically, has evolved dramatically from where it started. I think people, advisors, still think of AIM as a um, a market for very small startup companies, uh, but actually today. Um, it's got many, many companies um, with multiple hundred million pound market capitalizations, some very big names that um, that are well known by consumers like Fevertree, for example, that has a, a, a very large market cap. So um, I think it has matured enormously. I think Joe's absolutely right that it, it can be volatile. Uh, like any equity market, it, it can be volatile. And when investors are thinking about AIM-related investments, they, they, I completely agree they should be thinking over the long term. But um, but I, I do feel confident that the market's matured to a, to a level and to a scale where there is an opportunity for um, smart stock pickers to be able to produce good long-term risk-adjusted returns for for uh, their investors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of illiquidity, that's obviously something that investors might be thinking about more if it, if it comes to, you know, a, a down market like we saw last year, for example. Um, you know, it, do you think that those illiquidity risks are just something that investors in the AIM market sort of, sort of um, accept that they will take on when they enter it? AIM is not a particularly 
uh, illiquid market. It's a very well traded market. Uh, retail investors play a significant role in the day-to-day trading activity. So uh, for, for new clients to, to, to a service or to clients um, selling down from a service, it's entirely liquid on a day-to-day basis. The less, the less the, 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 the liquidity um, problem does present itself when you're shifting a portfolio around at scale. But we try and that is within our control at Puma. Uh, and, that, and that's what we're monitoring on a day to day basis, trying to manage that liquidity, uh, the, the liquidity risk that exists there. But it is a very liquid market on a day to day trading basis. Yeah. And I think, yeah. And I think I would add to Joe's point exactly right. I mean, we, as, as with many other, uh, portfolio managers building portfolios for investors on AIM will have a diversified portfolio. So we have nearly 40 different companies. Um, and importantly, we um, focus on that higher market cap. So we, we, we won't invest in something below a 50 million market cap. I think um, in the early days, again, a lot of people think about AIM as being for very small companies and hence you would have much higher volatility concerns around and much smaller companies, we try and mitigate that risk by only investing in the larger end of the AIM market. So they have to have a, for our portfolio, for example, they have to have a minimum market capitalization of 50 million pounds, five zero. And that yeah. being said, we will also, we also won't invest in some companies that are above 50 million market cap if we feel liquidity in the shares isn't good enough. Um, and a good measure for that is what's called free float which is the amount of shares that are freely available to trade. And that can be quite low in some AIM companies, even, even those above 50 million market cap. So there are measures that we, that we look to to try and identify which stocks have better liquidity than others. And as David referred to, we have 36 stocks in the portfolio. So we're not taking liquidity risks in terms of, um, in terms of our position sizes to these stocks. Mm, that's interesting. On the on the the free float, sorry, <laughs> on the free float element, Joe, um, is there kind of a certain number of shares that you would that you would set as a sort of benchmark that that a company has to have available on the market, or how how can you tell us a bit more about how that works? Yeah, so for us, really, there has to be a minimum of a forty percent free float, and that in in name. Part of the reason why companies list on AIM is because there's no free float, uh, there's no free float requirement, whereas on the main market there is. You need 25% free float for the main market. So companies which are family controlled and wanting to be on AIM because of the free float, um, that d- they, those stocks do come with liquidity risks, and we try and avoid those stocks which have low have low liquidity despite them having quite high market caps. Um, there are other reasons why why companies will choose to list on AIM and free float isn't isn't the main one. It's also about prospectuses and and the mm-hmm. regulations surrounding listing on AIM. Um, okay. But free float is is something that we monitor. That's really interesting. Thank you. That's that's good to kind of um, to yeah have have that explanation. Um, so it's obviously quite an interesting time for AIM investing um, and, and 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 tax efficient investing. Um, it was end of last year, I believe, that the inheritance tax threshold was frozen. Um, it was kind of delayed and frozen until uh, the 27-28 financial year. Um, and, you know, hopefully investors' assets are going to rise in value. So I just I just wanted to ask you both, you know, do you see a real 
opportunity set in in that change um, and and you know potentially more investors moving towards um, you know inheritance tax mitigation and and kind of thinking about that when they're investing. Yeah, Nicola, I, th- I think that's a really important point. It's it's a um, a stealth tax eff- effectively that people often forget about that if you're freezing um, the the um, thresholds in a high inflationary environment, then you're going to inevitably drag more people into uh, paying uh, higher inheritance tax um, amounts or their estates paying it uh, when they pass away. And we do uh, we do see a, a huge uh, increase in financial advisors looking at intergenerational planning f- for their clients. I think one of the big advantages of, of AIM uh, investing is that you retain control, that the client can, can retain control of their assets. So typically, the, the most popular way of, of mitigating inheritance tax is to gift your assets to your children, for example, your future beneficiaries of your estate. The problem with that is that you give up control of those assets. You're, you're literally giving them to a third party. Um, that uh, that means that if you need them later on in life for care, then you're relying on um, a, a family to support you. Um, it also takes seven years for a gift to be outside of your estate for inheritance tax purposes. It actually tapers over those seven years. Whereas, as Joe referred to earlier, um, in, if you hold a share for two years uh, that qualifies for business relief, um, an AIM share, that qualifies for business relief, and importantly, not every share does, uh, that if you hold that for two years and at the point of death, then it's outside of your estate for inheritance tax purposes. Um, but the key um, is that it's it's a two-year hold period, not seven uh, uh, for gifting. There are lots of other um, ways in which people can um, plan um, uh, to deal with inheritance tax in an efficient way. Um, so these are not the only two options, I should say that. There are many other options, but we do see an increasing interest in AIM. And I think there's one fundamental reason for that. Clients already have material allocations to small and mid-cap risk. So if they, or very often anyway, if they hold a portfolio that's a model portfolio put together by a discretionary fund manager, it will inevitably have funds in that portfolio or direct holdings in small and mid-cap holdings. So often advisors are talking to us uh, about reallocating that element of the portfolio. It's it's not normal that a client would put 100% of their assets into AIM, but if they're already exposed to and taking that small and mid-cap risk, then why not have the same risk um, but get an additional benefit uh, of being um, a, a, of potentially having um, exempt from inheritance tax status on that part of your portfolio. So I think that's a good way of advisors thinking about AIM for their clients. They're already exposed to that risk, and here's a way of having an, ad, an added benefit from taking the same market exposure. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, to, to, to play devil's advocate a little bit and, and, you know, sort of put something to you both. Um, what if an, an advisor was to say, um, you know, if I if I did that, as you suggested, David, um, my, my, my portfolio fees would be slightly higher, you know, if I chose a, a, a portfolio for this specific purpose, and I might be taking on more risk. Um, what would you say to that advisor? I think that's an absolutely valid point. Um, I think there is 
a significant amount of more work to run a portfolio in a responsible way um, on AIM um, than compared to maybe uh, other markets if the one of the primary drivers is to ensure inheritance tax efficiency. Um, um, so, for example, we've talked a little bit about you know, the, the selection exercise, the diversification. One, one of the things that I mentioned earlier, not every AIM stock qualifies for business relief, the relief that, that, that through which you um, obtain the inheritance tax exemption. And so our job as fund managers is actually to do quite a lot of work with third party uh, professionals like uh, large accountancy firms that help us do this to understand the nature of the company's trade, to make sure, um, as far as we're able to, that the uh, company that we're investing in is going to qualify for business relief. Um, we're going to spend a lot of time, as, as Joe uh, indicated, thinking about liquidity and volatility. So, um, you know, one of I would suggest to a financial advisor thinking about that with their client that, yes, there is a trade off. It might be a little bit more expensive um, because of the, 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 the nuances in running an AIM inheritance tax portfolio. And there might be a little bit more volatility or, or a bit more risk because investing on the AIM market than, say, FTSE 100. Um, but... Uh, with that comes a very material financial benefit for a person's estate, a 40% up, you know, potentially 40% savings. So you know, that's an equation that advisors should be talking to uh, with their clients. And as I say, a lot of them are already taking that exposure. Um, but you are right. You know, there, there are additional costs and there potentially is a little bit extra risk. I mean, just one final point on that. You know, obviously, we've seen huge volatility in the, the, the larger global uh, equity markets, you've seen tech stock valuations globally come down materially. Um, FTSE 100 have been quite volatile. So I, I think actually now where we're living today, uh, perhaps AIM is perhaps not such an outlier in terms of volatility and risk um, as compared with some of the larger markets. Yeah, yeah, that's it's certainly true, isn't it? That that um, a lot of markets have just seen more volatility recently. Um, and I guess you know, if if we are headed towards um, another difficult time for UK equities, um, you know, thinking about recession risk, I suppose, can you see that as an environment where you know, in the AIM market, as with other markets, um, the the winners can really sort of have an opportunity to win and the losers, you know, might suffer more? Absolutely. I think there are a lot, the, the innovation within AIM there are, is, is tremendous. Uh, there are companies in there which drive efficiencies in their, in their customer bases. And there are 810 companies on AIM. We only need to find 36. So we're looking for businesses which have got repeatable, predictable cash flows, they're profitable, and we aren't. We are cognizant of the risks, so we're trying to find businesses with um, better predictability in their revenue streams, run by good management teams, to try and reduce the risk. We aren't a, a risk-on small-cap fund buying speculative positions in loss-making businesses. We are cognizant that we're investing for AMHT investors, um, and we believe that by buying companies which have high margins and can reinvest their profits in at high returns on capital 
in defensive sectors and defensive industries, then over time that will that will equate to a less volatile return. But obviously, we can't take into account very short-term movements. In, 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 in the worst of markets, AIM is a volatile market and share prices do respond. But over time, those businesses with high margins, high returns on capital, good cash flows, they'll be the ones that win out. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really interesting um, thought about, you know, the, the businesses in the AIM market that are that are incredibly growthy. And um, I just wondered, because I noticed that, for example, um, your AIM IHT portfolio, um, it has quite a high exposure to software companies, computer services companies. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but more broadly, kind of tech tech exposure. Um, and I know that in, in the larger markets, um, large cap markets, that's, you know, that's a sector that has has struggled over the past few years, um, it, just because it's shown more volatility. Um, but if we if we take those areas of the AIM market as an example, you know, um, how f- for you, for you, David and Joe, how, you know, how many of those companies actually look appealing for the kind of companies that you're trying to target? And is it is it quite a challenge to kind of pick out those companies from the from the entire market? It's, it's a challenge, but it's a great challenge. Um, lots of global tech companies are consumer facing, whereas many of the software companies on AIM, they are actually business to business software. So they're mission critical to their customer bases. Um, we are, software is our largest sector, but it's also the largest subsector for AIM. So um, there are 86 software companies on AIM that equates to 12.5% of the index. Um, by comparison, London's main market has about a 2% allocation to, techno- to, to technology as a sector. Um, and we are about in line with the index, maybe slightly slightly ahead of the index in terms of our software, software um, allocation. But it's going back to finding businesses with recurring repeatable revenues and good cash flows. When you offer a mission critical service to a customer, um, you don't turn off that revenue stream. So they're often contracted, they're three to five year contracts. And so we find them a particularly strong point of aim is, is the technology space. And obviously what the, what the last year has provided is much lower valuations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on, on, that, on that note, and to pull out an example of one of those businesses, actually, I think Fintel is a business that that, um, that you were invested in. Um, and it's a name that I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with. With Fintel, um, are you able to kind of um, explain why you like that as, a, as an investment? Yeah, so it's one that's been held in the portfolio for some years. Uh, we like it because it's very much subscription led. So if uh, any advisors listening in who use Simply Biz, you'll pay your subscription to use their services. Um, and the other brand they, they own is DeFacto, and 55% of DeFacto's revenues are sort of recurring subscription-based. Um, um, Fintel are probably mission critical to your business. Um, you, you aren't going to turn off your compliance services just as consumer duty is being switched on. You're probably speaking to them more than ever. They probably aren't charging you anymore, um, but that you're, you're more mission critical to them. So we, we really like that business and we, we like the wealth sector as well. Um, there's good recurring revenues, repeatable revenues. It's uh, the, the baby boomers coming through to retirement. It's a good space to be in. Um, and yeah, we like Fintel because it's got good recurring revenues. It's also got a good margin story. So it's operating margins are set to improve as they increase their scale. 
um, and it's well run. It's 30% um, of the business is owned by the management or the founder. So we've got a good alignment with them as well. Um, but it is one of those where the, where the liquidity isn't isn't great because it's largely owned by, you know, 30% owned by the founder and the, and the directors. So we position size it in the portfolio appropriately. Okay, that's that's interesting. Thank you. Um, and another sector of the AIM market um, that I just wanted to touch on briefly was um, the kind of financial services market. And and again, a couple of names um, in in the index that I think our listeners will be familiar with: wealth managers and um, you know investment solution providers. Um, I was wondering if you could pull out a few uh, companies from that space and and just mention why you like them. So. Uh... Two companies in the portfolio are Mattioli Woods and Brooks McDonald. Mm -hmm. um, Brooks McDonald is obviously going through some leadership changes. Um, Mattioli Woods is a very well-run, long-term business. Um, we, um, it's, it just goes back to the financial planning side, um, and we like the recurring fee income that, that both of those businesses derive. Um, I think that there is scope for consolidation in the sector. Um, I don't think the same cases can be made for Mattioli Woods and Brooks McDonald. Um, but we think that they're both not valued appropriately based on multiples that many people in the financial planning community, for instance, will be aware of um, through private equity. Um, yeah, that's really interesting, Joe. Um, and actually, on that point, um, we... A couple of weeks ago, we spoke to um, the managers of the Trojan Income Fund, um, obviously, uh, you know, different kind of um, investments that they make um, compared to, to what you do and with a different investment objective. But an interesting point that they made about, um, I think, some of the sort of smaller UK financial services businesses was that um, it was tricky to achieve scale in that market. Um, it's quite a crowded market if we're talking about um, advice firms and wealth firms and also platforms they, they spoke about. Um, and for them, you know, I think they tended to favour businesses that had market share um, and also were quite diversified because they just saw those as kind of the the, the safest investments, if you like. Um, but I wanted to ask, do you, do you agree that in that sector, thinking about some of these aimlessed businesses that you invest in, do you think that scale is quite a challenge? Um, and is that something that you kind of um, think about with these businesses? Oh, absolutely. There is the, there is the um, pivot between um, size in terms of accretion from doing smaller deals. So if you're a smaller business and you're buying others at low multiples, it's very accretive in the early days versus scale where you need to be of a certain size to justify central cost. Um, we both of the both Mattioli Woods and Brooks World in our portfolio, they are 20% operating margin plus businesses. Uh, we don't have any concerns about their, their scale and being outcompeted in the wealth space. We think this market is led by service. If you're delivering good service, then that wins out. And um, I, I I think the counter argument to going for scale is that sometimes scale doesn't always equal service. Just a, a quick one on, on Brooks McDonald before we move on. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, there's been some leadership change in that business across the past year or so. Um, if you have an aimlisted business that's of a certain size, um, how much are things like um, leadership changes? You know, how much are you thinking about them? Yes, it matters uh, considerably. 
Um, the chief execs and the finance directors within AIM, business have, AIM businesses have a lot more influence over the business than a, a large FTSE 100 or multinational business. They're a lot closer to the shop floor. So they really do matter. Um, and for instance, when Brooks McDonald made those announcements, we were on the phone speaking to Andrew, Andrew Shepherd, trying to understand what had happened. And if a similar situation like that happens in other management teams, that's the first thing we we do is try and establish what the facts are and work from there. I think obviously um, with Brooks McDonald, the changes there, um, it, it's not positive in terms of it's going to make acquisitions in the near term slightly more complicated, perhaps, because they need to um, refresh the management team. But we don't have, along, importantly, we don't perceive there to be any issues in the investment team or the, or the customer facing side of the business. Um, so we, we, we haven't changed our position there. But when this happens to other businesses, this is an absolute pivotal thing. When there's management changes, we are, they are under the microscope. Yeah. Okay. That that's good to know. Thank you. Um, so, uh, David and Joe, on Puma's um, AIM ISA AHT service, um, it's it's one of the newer products, if I'm not mistaken, that you offer. Um, why did you decide to make um, this, you know, AIM IHT proposition available within an ISA wrapper? Yeah, yeah. So um, actually, the portfolio has been going since um, July 2014. So we've actually been um, managing the portfolio for quite a long time. And the ISA step um, was a change made by the government um, to include the possibility of owning AIM shares within ISAs, um, which we, you know, which was a very positive step for the government to make to support. Uh, what has been a key market over the last 20 or so years uh, um, in providing a place for smaller growth companies to, to, to scale, to access the capital markets in a slightly easier fashion um, uh, than perhaps the full market in terms of the types of regulations that, that govern those companies and how you list and, and when you are listed, what, what obligations you have. It is a slightly lighter touch. It's not actually materially less in my view. Um, and, um, you know, for us, um, we, going back to the point that I was trying to explain earlier, you know, people already have, we were quite aware that investors already have within their ISAs exposure to smaller mid cap funds. So they're already taking that market risk. And so it was a natural step for us to take advantage of the, you know, the government uh, sponsored change in allowing AIM stocks in, in ISAs and saying, well, actually, um, you can solve a problem here because the, the fantastic thing about ISAs are that they're hugely tax efficient when you or alive, but actually, as, as as all your advisor listeners will know, they're completely tax inefficient uh, on death um, because they fall within your inheritance tax net, and there's very little that one can do to mitigate that um, apart from either taking it out of your ISA during your lifetime, in which case you lose the benefits of holding uh, assets within an ISA, uh, or um, you can invest in certain AIM stocks that qualify for business relief. So um, it, there is a really material value to investors that have built up sizable 
um, isopods. And you read papers all, all the time about, and I'm sure some of your uh, listeners will have clients that, that are isomillionaires. So, so some people and, and, and certainly um, partners together combined may have well in excess of a million pounds now, given how long ISIS have been around. Uh, and that creates a, 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 an intergenerational financial planning problem for those clients when they're thinking about how to 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 leave um, assets to the next generation in a tax efficient way. So, you know, for us, um, we, we felt that we were building up a good track record. You know, we've delivered uh, close to 8% compound annual growth rates since, since July 14. And we're, as Joe said, very focused on the long term and continuing to try and deliver those kind of decent returns. So even aside from the tax relief, we think we're doing a reasonable job. Uh, we're not the only ones, but we, we think we're doing a reasonable job in delivering um, a decent growth rate uh, over the long term. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I mean, how are you seeing IFAs um, sort of integrating this um, this kind of product into their you know their broader investment portfolio? How, what are you kind of seeing with with your clients? Yeah, well, one of the big changes we we made, and really it's about listening to to advisors. And uh, sometimes we get this wrong, and sometimes we get it right. But we we did listen to them, um, uh, and we got a lot of feedback that it would be really helpful to be able to hold um, an AIM inheritance tax service portfolio within a, a platform on on a platform. And so we, I think, we're quite pioneering in this respect. We we, we led the charge, and we're now on a lot of the major. Uh, rap platforms that 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 your clients uh, that your listeners might be listening uh, that that might be using. So, for example, we're on Fidelity, um, on Aberdeen Transact, MG Wealth, Platform One, Nucleus. For advisors, that's a godsend because, uh, from an administrative perspective, um, they don't need to do very much. They sign a, a, an agreement with us, and they can then allocate cl- multiple clients' capital to the model portfolio in a few clicks of, of buttons. I mean, I'm sure there's a little bit more to it and they have to obviously speak to their clients, but it's much less cumbersome than um, filling in long application forms. It can all be done uh, within their uh, existing RAP platform. So we found that to be um, a, a real step change for advisors engaging with this product because I do think, and I completely understand it, that, that there is a... Uh, there is a sort of administrative burden if you have to apply for each client directly, go through the um, application process and send the money separately. It, it's all dealt with by the platform. And that's that's fundamentally how advisors are working now. So we were quite keen to sort of move with the times and, and, and do that. So we've been adding platforms over the last four or five years. And, and I think we'll, we'll continue to do that um, as we get demand. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. From from an advisor's perspective, you know how um, how sort of simple is it to to go into to these portfolios on, on you know that they might hold on one of these platforms and and um, and uh, actually yeah actually I better just check this um, David and Joe for for asking the question um, within your within your portfolios you know is there is is there a kind of bespoke element is it entirely discretionary or is there a bespoke bespoke element where advisors can go in and kind of move in and out of the the um investments that they want to no it it, it is run as a model portfolio okay so it's it's it, it, it's all models so yeah okay. the advisor the advisor can't sort of turn bits off a final question david and joe um and this one's on um sustainability um 
I just was wondering for, you know, for our listeners for whom sustainability is quite an important factor when they're investing, um, to what extent do you engage with sustainability sustainability considerations um, when looking at investments for your portfolios? Um, is that something that's a little bit more difficult to engage with when it comes to AIM investing or are there some opportunities there? So it's something we already, we already monitor, uh, already go through. So looking at things like uh, carbon emissions, gender pay gaps, employee satisfaction scores, alignment with UN SDGs, a whole, a whole ream of things. Uh, the issue arises where some companies are slow to to disclose the information. There's a, there is this balance between appropriate disclosure and the resource within the businesses. These are smaller businesses, and some of them perhaps don't they don't perceive themselves as having a high carbon foot, a high carbon footprint, for instance, and they do run themselves in a well governed way. However, they perhaps came into it late thinking, well, this doesn't apply to us, but it does. And institutions are demanding it. And if you're running a UK smaller companies fund, your, your own ESG department of your firm will be asking, why isn't, this, why isn't this firm disclosing? And so for things like carbon intensity scores, we would love to be able to put a carbon intensity score out for the portfolio, but we, but we go to the lowest common denominator and a couple of our companies aren't disclosing that yet. But on the counter to that, we want them to put out the right data. We don't want them to put out um, inaccurate or um, misleading data. So we'd much prefer that they go about it in the right manner. Where we, we don't run an ESG element to the portfolio because we don't, in terms of we don't wrap anything up as a sustainable portfolio service, um, because at the moment we don't feel the level of disclosure is quite good enough across, across AIM and it would constrain us too much currently as things stand that may that may change and given two to three years when as the companies collate more data that will like that will likely change um yeah it's interesting yeah and and i think there are a couple of providers um in in this part of the market who recently have launched you know sustainable um aim portfolio services um so it's, it's interesting thinking about some of those 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 issues you've raised and the fact that some products are being launched um you know and 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 to what I think, extent? Yeah. Yeah. I think they may be looking at the underlying business models of the businesses and what they're doing for the environment. But we are trying to go with an investment approach first. Um, we're looking for the most repeatable, repeating revenue, uh, the most resilient business models. And quite a lot of those kind of green businesses, which may be targeted on the basis of themes, they are, they are riskier. Some of those businesses are loss making. Um, they are um, exposed to changes in their competitive environment because it is a hot area. There is capital coming in on the on the fringes, which which changes the, the, the competitive dynamics of their industry. So, yes, there are sustainable portfolio services being launched, but we just feel that it constrains our investment opportunity too much. And it, uh, currently, as things stand, exposes the clients to too much risk. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks, Joe. Um, we're coming to the end of the podcast now, but was there anything else um, about this space that you would like to sort of communicate to our listeners that maybe we haven't touched on? I would say one thing, and, and it's a it's slight pitch, but also just an, an awareness, uh, because it, it applies not just to us, but to other 
uh, fund managers that operate in this space, which is that uh, and really goes to the heart of your questioning around volatility and risk. Yet clearly, um, financial advisors need to be talking to their clients about intergenerational planning. Um, and if aim isn't right for, for those clients and they don't want to take that market risk, um, us and several uh, other fund managers do have uh, portfolios that invest into private trading companies. Uh, so, for example, we have a service called Puma Heritage Estate Planning Service that invests into companies that focus on uh, first charge secured lending, uh, where um, the loans are secured against real estate assets. We've been doing it a very long time. We've uh, lent over a billion pounds and touch wood haven't lost a pound of capital yet. So we've consistently delivered returns for for, for investors without that market risk um, volatility of the uh, of the public markets. Uh, that's not to say it's not without risk. Of course, every investment has ha has a risk, but we've proven over a very long time that we can deliver a consistent return. Um, and and as I say, other fund managers have um, uh, private discretionary services. Sorry, discretionary services that invest in private trading companies, where um, the intention is that those companies will qualify for the same relief we've been talking about today. That business relief um, uh, that that leads to an exemption from inheritance tax. So I thought I'd mention that at the end, that the AIM is, is a very good answer for a lot of clients. Um, there's many billions of pounds invested in AIM, partly motivated by this business relief. Um, but if clients are not happy uh, with that, then there are other solutions out there available. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, a, a real range that, that Puma has on offer. Um, so yeah, thank you very much, David. Um, and, and yeah, Joe and David, thank you very much for, for joining us today on the advice show. And, um, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Um, if you'd like to get in contact, uh, to any of our listeners, if you'd like to get in contact with Joe and, uh, David or with Puma, um, and had any questions, um, where would be best for our listeners to, to find you? Well, um, it's David speaking. I'm, I'm the CEO. I, I often speak to advisors. I'm delighted to do so. They're very, very welcome to contact me. Um, all our details are on our website, pumerinvestments.co.uk, uh, which is being completely rebuilt at the moment. It still works. Uh, it's a little bit old. Uh, so I'm very excited that in the next few months we'll be launching a, a brand new shiny website. But for now, all my details uh, are on there and be delighted to speak directly uh, to any advisors. And we have quite a large team of uh, business development managers across the UK uh, that can also help and come and meet and, and, and talk advisors through um, what we offer. Brilliant. Thanks very much um, again, David and Joe. And thank you everyone for listening. Um, so if you'd like to get in contact with us for any questions about the episode that we can always pass on to David and Joe as well. Uh, my email is nblackburn at citywire.co.uk. Or you can find us on Twitter. We're at New Model Advisor. Thanks again, everybody for listening. From jet engines to space rockets, telephones to computers, the world has seen spectacular change in the last hundred years, and the pace of progress is getting faster and faster. From electric cars to the metaverse, drone deliveries to climate solutions and genetic sequencing, we're investing in the companies that are not just changing the world today, but are also shaping the future. The Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Invest in progress. Capital at risk.